The demise of First Republic Bank. Regulators have sold its assets to J.P. Morgan Chase. The deal will make the nation's largest bank even larger. Our story is coming up on this Monday, the 1st of May. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the story of the diamond that passed through Persian and Afghan hands before it was gifted to Queen Victoria. It's a symbol of imperial plunder that you won't see at Charles's coronation. The writers on shows such as Saturday Night Live are preparing to go on strike mainly over their pay. A lot of writers are working for a weekly rate that is equivalent to what they may have made four or five or in some cases even 10 years ago. We'll take a look at what's at stake for the industry. First, news headlines and Wall Street numbers. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. U.S. stocks end the day slightly lower after another U.S. bank fail. The third in two months, regulators closed First Republic Bank. Then, as NPR's David Gurr reports, J.P. Morgan Chase bought its deposits and most of its assets. This part of the crisis is over. That's what J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon told Wall Street analysts on a call after J.P. Morgan bought First Republic Bank overnight. Its collapse played out over several weeks after Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank failed. First Republic's efforts to reassure customers and investors didn't work. And in the end, First Republic couldn't find a buyer on its own. Customers withdrew more than $100 billion in deposits, and First Republic's stock sank. Today, J.P. Morgan shares traded higher. David Gura, NPR News, New York. We see the Dow is down 47 points at 34,050. The S&P was down one point. The Nasdaq lost 13. The U.N.'s food agency says it is restarting its operations in Sudan, suspended when three of its staff were killed. NPR's Emmanuel Akunwotu reports the humanitarian crisis in the country is getting worse by the day amid fighting between the army and a powerful paramilitary group. More than 70,000 people have now fled the country. A collapse of the health system has seen thousands injured but without adequate care. Aid operations have shut down and barely any medical supplies have arrived in Sudan, causing growing anger. But the World Food Programme says it has now lifted its two-week suspension and says it's working to provide life-saving assistance. Only the first shipment of aid supplies arrived in Sudan yesterday, delivered by the International Committee of the Red Cross. Meanwhile, the fighting still rages on. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos. Columnist E. Jean Carroll was back on the stand today in her civil case against former President Donald Trump, whom she accuses of raping her in the mid-1990s and then publicly lying about it when she disclosed her story decades later. Trump's legal team appeared focused on Carroll's actions in the months following the alleged attack as they attempt to discredit her testimony. Tonight at midnight, the contract between the Hollywood Writers Union and the major studios expires. NPR's Mandalita El Barco reports the Writers Guild of America says they could go on strike if their demands are not met. TV and film writers say they're ready to hit the picket lines tomorrow morning if a strike is called just after midnight. Negotiators on both sides are working out how much the writers will be compensated for work that shows up on the streaming services, among other issues. Writers say their wages and living conditions are untenable. Studio executives have been stuck piling scripts in case they stop working. The last time writers went on strike in 2007, Hollywood production shut down for 100 days. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News, Los Angeles. It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. 
Tents that belong to people experiencing homelessness are being taken down near the intersection of Mass Ave and Melania Cass Boulevard in Boston. Today, the city restarted enforcement of its tent removal policy. That enforcement was paused during the wintertime. Last week, the city began to alert people who live in the encampment. Kelly Turley with the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless is watching what's happening wanting to make sure that the people most impacted are part of the conversation and making the decisions and that people's rights and autonomy are respected um, as encampments are, are taken down. Turley is urging the legislature to pass a bill of rights for people who are unhoused. She says that would ensure people's rights to rest, eat, and pray in public spaces. After school activities at the Pantucket Regional Middle School and Middle uh, High School in West Newbury have been canceled today. Earlier today, the school was evacuated and classes were canceled after several students in the seventh grade science lab began to complain about a strange odor. Four students were treated at local hospitals for nausea and throat irritation. Investigators say a refrigerant leak from a rooftop air conditioning unit is to blame for the smell. There were no serious injuries reported. Gasoline prices in Massachusetts remain relatively stable. The statewide average rose a penny in the past week to $3.49 a gallon. That's 12 cents lower than the national average and more than 70 cents below the statewide average at this time last year. The Celtics start their second-round playoff series with the Philadelphia 76ers tonight at 7.30. Fans are not the only ones excited about the game tonight at the Garden. Business owners in the neighborhood say the game's put more... Fannies in their seats. Michael Moretti is the general manager of Tavern in the Square near the Garden. He says business is definitely amplified when the Celts make the playoffs. You got a lot of people, a lot of families coming out uh, beforehand. You can't take anything away from having 20,000 extra people across the street from your restaurant, and that's what the TD Garden does. It puts an extra 20,000 people in the neighborhood, which is always great for business. Moretti says he's also finally uh, fine with nearby Canal Street being closed to traffic and outdoor open to outdoor dining for playoff games at the Garden. He says no one business can host all the fans who go to the games, so it's good to see all the businesses in the neighborhood succeed. And the forecast clouds blocking out the sun through much of the region. Tonight, partly cloudy, dropping only to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, gray in a big way. Thunderstorms possible, some strong winds. Could reach about 57. 62 degrees now in Boston at 406. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In the banking panic of 1907, J.P. Morgan came to the rescue. He and other financiers used their own money to prop up the U.S. banking system. Well, this weekend, it was J.P. Morgan Chase. America's biggest bank bought most of the assets of First Republic Bank in a fire sale after First Republic was taken over by regulators. It is the third big bank to fail this spring. NPR Scott Horsley is here. Hey, Scott. Hi, good to be with you. Hi, good to be with you. It's so interesting to remember the history there. Talk us through how this latest takeover came about. Well, First Republic has been hanging by a thread, really, ever since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank back in March. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and other big banks had tried to prop it up by depositing $30 billion at First Republic, but that was just a holding action. Last week, we learned the bank lost $100 billion worth of deposits during the Silicon Valley contagion. 
And when that news got out, the company's stock fell to nearly nothing. Uh, eventually, regulators stepped in and took over, and J.P. Morgan Chase agreed to buy what's left of First Republic's deposits and most of its loans. Uh, the 84 First Republic branches reopened uh, this morning, and customers did have full access to their money. The failure, though, is expected to cost the government's deposit insurance system about $13 billion. Well, and when you start throwing around numbers like losses of $100 billion, it's, this is serious. Is it time to call this a banking crisis. You know, there was a worry when Silicon Valley Bank went under that the problem would spread to other mid-sized banks, that nervous customers would take their money and flee to the safety of bigger banks. And we did see some of that, but the flight seems to have stabilized. Other regional banks are not reporting the kind of outsized exodus that First Republic experienced. Now, historically, there has been some political resistance to supersized banks in the U.S. Mm. Uh, We still have far more small community banks than most countries do. Jamie Dimon, who's CEO at J.P. Morgan Chase, says those small banks do play an important role in the economy, but he argues big banks are important, too. We have capabilities to help our clients who happen to be cities, schools, states, hospitals, governments. We bank countries. We bank the IMF. We bank the World Bank. You need large, successful banks. And anyone who thinks that it would be good for the United States of America not to have that should call me directly. J.P. Morgan Chase was already by far the biggest bank in the U.S., and in fact, it had to get special permission from federal regulators to get even bigger with this acquisition. Scott, all three of the banks that have failed this spring, they all had a large share of uninsured deposits. How much did that contribute to their downfall? Ever since the Great Depression, the government's provided deposit insurance to reassure bank customers that even if a bank fails, they'll get their money back. And that helps to prevent bank runs. But deposits are only covered up to a quarter million dollars per account. And all three of these failed banks had a lot of deposits that were over that limit, money that bolted at the first sign of trouble. That is very destabilizing. And as a result, policymakers are taking a look at the deposit insurance limit to see if some changes might be needed. Um, What kind of changes might they be looking at? The FDIC came out with some policy options this afternoon. Uh, They said unlimited deposit insurance would be very expensive and might encourage undue risk-taking, but some targeted increase in the limit might be beneficial, especially for business accounts used to cover payroll and that kind of thing. Aaron Klein, who's at the Brookings Institution, argues wealthy, only the wealthy would benefit from added insurance, though, and he worries that poor people would end up paying the cost of that. So he's, he's against the idea. We should note any changes in the deposit insurance insurance system would require an act of Congress. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. It took decades for the Department of Veterans Affairs to begin updating its electronic health record system. Now, billions of dollars later, the VA has halted that update. After multiple breakdowns and four deaths connected to system errors, it abruptly stopped all work on its $16 billion rollout of the Oracle Cerner Electronic Health System. It had been introduced at only five VA sites. NPR's Quill Lawrence spoke to some of the vets affected. Well, I had gone to my doctor's office for another yearly appointment, I believe. (coughs) Charlie Borg is a Vietnam vet living north of Spokane, Washington. He noticed his VA doctor was having trouble with a new program. She tried to put in the uh, referral to urology, and it took her three times to get it in. And at that time, she goes, got it this time. So she told me that they would contact me when urology got the results if they needed to see me. Borg never heard back. Months later, he saw his primary doc again. She asked why he'd never gone to the urologist. 
He finally saw one 10 months after the original referral. And at that time, they found out there was, a, I believe, a tumor on my prostate. And it came back that the cancer had spread to my lymph nodes between my spine and my stomach where they couldn't get to it. And that's why it's terminal. Borg says it might have been treatable, but his referral had disappeared into a glitch in the system. On top of the emotions he's feeling, the grief for his family, his grandchildren, Borg resents that veterans in Spokane and four other sites have had to deal with the troubled Cerner program. I was kind of irritated because basically they'd used us as guinea pigs on a system that they had never tested. And Cerner was saying it was okay. The Department of Veterans Affairs pioneered electronic health records with a program called Vista back in the 1990s. The decades-long push to update Vista and make it compatible with the Pentagon's health system wrapped up in 2017, when the Trump administration bought the Cerner system for $10 billion over 10 years in a no-bid contract. So far, it's only rolled out in five sites, including Spokane. The rollout at VA sites at Washington State has been an ongoing disaster, with new disruptions still happening. That's Washington Senator Patty Murray talking at a hearing last week on VA spending. I've heard from providers who are burnt out trying to navigate this broken interface, patients who are unable to get medicine they rely on because of system malfunctions, and even a patient who received a late cancer diagnosis because of flaws in the system. And that's just what we know right now. It is unacceptable. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough didn't contradict her. The Oracle Cerner system has been blamed for at least four deaths and hundreds of other harmful errors. McDonough has paused the rollout twice in the past year. I am extraordinarily frustrated with this. I know our providers and our veterans in Washington uh, and in Oregon and in uh, Ohio are extraordinarily frustrated with this. Finally, late last month, VA announced it would halt all further deployments of the system. McDonough says VA will concentrate on the five sites where Cerner is running and try to fix it. The whole point of this reset is clear away everything else. Let's focus on the five. Let's get it right. And then we'll talk about onward deployment. That's not good enough for many of the vets and providers using the system. Ed Maher, a former VA official, says the Cerner deal needs to be dumped. No matter how many billions of dollars they spend at it, they cannot make this system Uh, perform as well as their current system, I think they're simply grudgingly admitting that this isn't going to work. Maher thinks the VA's old Vista system can be updated and work better, and it's wrong to keep subjecting vets at those five sites to a flawed system. For making them be guinea pigs in the first place, but to continue it now. And they've been willing to accept four deaths as the price of putting a system in place. Uh, you cannot do this to people. You cannot do this to veterans. This is health care. This is life and death. There's a five-year option to renegotiate the Oracle Cerner contract. That comes up later this month. And VA officials say they're pushing hard for better service. Otherwise, many in Congress are suggesting the VA should walk away. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. The abundant water in California has been a boost for many animals and plants, including a super bloom of wildflowers. But for some animals, it's been life-threatening. NPR's Lauren Summer takes us to the Central Valley, where rescues are underway for an endangered rabbit. The San Joaquin River is unrecognizable right now. This is a river that goes completely dry in some years because it's so heavily used in California. Now it's overflowing. It's really good if you're a fish. The ducks and the waterfowl are really loving it right now. 
Eric Hobson is refuge manager at the San Joaquin River National Wildlife Refuge. The river here has gone over its banks, swamping stands of cottonwood trees. We spot a beaver among them. Yeah, the, the beavers, are, they're kind of homeless because their lodges and burrows are inundated, but we found that they're very quick to make a new home. It's good for a lot of wildlife, but not all of them. You want to make wakes? Okay. We head out in an aluminum boat, looking for islands of dry land in all this water. So we have this strip of high ground that isn't flooded, but some of this is going to be flooded when the water comes up another two or three more feet. That will give the wildlife nowhere to go, including what Hobson spots right ahead. So we do have a riparian brush rabbit. It's a brown rabbit, only a foot long, and it's highly endangered. The late 1990s, they were thought to be near extinct. In fact, there was a, a period of time where they are actually thought to be extinct. This rabbit is in a wire cage, a small trap that Hobson has set so it can be moved somewhere safer. It'll be vaccinated as well against a new threat, rabbit hemorrhagic disease, a fatal virus that recently arrived here. So far, Hobson and his team have rescued more than 360 endangered rabbits. Some were plucked from tree branches after the dry ground disappeared. These rabbits didn't always need saving, of course. In the past, when the river flooded, the rabbits would just move to higher ground. Unfortunately, nowadays, most of that, that natural high grounds right up slope from the floodplains is taken up with farmland. Farm fields don't provide any shelter for the rabbits, so they have nowhere to go. Hobson says the wildlife refuge is trying to acquire more of this higher ground land, but it's tough in a prime agricultural area. Very few farmers are willing to sell that land, and when they are, it's very highly priced. But with climate change bringing bigger weather swings to California, including more flooding, expanding this habitat could be key for endangered rabbits and the whole ecosystem. Lauren Summer, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR on Wall Street. The Dow closed slightly lower after J.P. Morgan's takeover of First Republic Bank. The index lost just over a tenth of a percent. S&P was down a tiny fraction. The Nasdaq dropped about a tenth of a percent, too. J.P. Morgan Chase's purchase of First Republic will speed up Morgan's expansion plan in Massachusetts. Last summer, the bank said it wants to have 90 retail branches in the state by 2025. The overnight deal adds five branches to the 43 J.P. Morgan Chase has in Massachusetts. First Republic was the sixth largest bank in the state last year based on deposits. Last year, J.P. Morgan Chase ranked 33rd largest in Massachusetts. It's 419. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College. A school psychology graduate degree opens rewarding careers working with children. Scholarships available for fall. WilliamJames.edu. Check out Violation, the new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project. Violation explores America's opaque parole system through a decades-old murder case. You can hear Violation wherever you get your podcasts.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. 62 degrees now in the Boston area. The sun is out, then it's in, and now it's out again. Bright sunshine through parts of Boston and parts of the region right now. Partial cloudiness overnight tonight, dropping to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, gray in a big way. Thunderstorms possible. Some strong winds should reach about 57 degrees. Again in the Boston area, 62 degrees. Pretty windy out there right now. The time is 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. This Saturday is King Charles III's coronation. You'll see lots of pomp and tradition at the ceremony in London. But this next story is about what you won't see. The royals have decided to leave out one of their most glittering crown jewels. It's a famous diamond from India. Some say it was a gift to Queen Victoria. Others call it a 100-carat symbol of imperial plunder. NPR's Lauren Freyer begins this report in southern India. Centuries before humans began mining diamonds deep underground, gems were discovered only when they worked their way up to the Earth's surface in places like this. A muddy tributary of India's Krishna River. This is where legend has it, 800 or so years ago, someone stumbled upon what was then the biggest diamond in the world. My guide Mohan Devarpali explains. In the earlier times, people used to go to the rivers and take baths. And there were no soaps or no any cosmetics at the time. So use the wet clay which is next to the river banks. While pulling the clay, they found the diamond. It was the size of a coconut. And they brought it to their then rulers, the 12th century Hindu kings of the Kakatiya dynasty. At the time, India was full of warring states, and the kings, needing to keep their diamonds safe, hid it in plain sight. Inside the statue of a Hindu goddess in a temple that still stands today in the southern city of Varangal. <laughs> Saffron-robed monks are chanting prayers around a big golden deity of the goddess Durga. She has these deep black holes for eyes. And for centuries, one of those eyes was filled by the diamond. So one of the eyes was the diamond, which no one knew except the kings. It looks like glass. Even the priests, they were not knew that. So it was a top secret. It's a top secret place to hide the diamond. It worked for a couple centuries at least. But rumors spread about this giant diamond guarded by a goddess. And it became the object of violent conquest. It's the nearest thing to the Ring of Power and Lord of the Rings. Wherever it goes, it stirs up 
anger, greed, murder and bloodshed. Historian William Dalrymple co-wrote a book about the diamond and all the mysteries, even curses, that surround it. We can tell from its geology that it did come from this one part of India. But beyond that, its history is enormously disputed. It, uh, there's almost no record of it until it's on the top of the peacock throne, which is built in the 1640s by Shah Jahan, who's the same guy who builds the Taj Mahal. By this point, much of India has been conquered by the Mughals, Muslim emperors. One of them, Shah Jahan, puts the diamond on his peacock throne, his seat of power. And that is around when the diamond becomes known as the Kohinoor, which means mountain of light in Persian. An Iranian leader called Nadir Shah defeats the enormous Mughal army. Uh, from Iran, it enters the hands of the founder of Afghanistan. The Kohinoor passes through Mughal, Persian, Afghan and Sikh empires. All of their rulers covet the diamond. One of them strapped it to his arm in battle, another to the front of his turban. And all of them met grisly deaths, murdered, betrayed, defeated. And that is where this whole mythology of cursed diamonds begins. So by the time the British arrive on the scene, the Kohinoor is thought to be cursed, at least for men. But there is one person they thought might safely wear it. She was Queen of Great Britain. She was Empress of India. In the mid-19th century, British diplomats befriend a 10-year-old Sikh prince, Duleep Singh, who'd inherited the Kohinoor. And they basically take this little boy's diamond in a treaty and give it to Queen Victoria. That loss is felt memorialized in India to this day. What an enormous diamond! Look at its brilliance! Can you tell me what this diamond is? In a sound and light show at the 11th century Golconda Fort, the voice of Bollywood's biggest star, Amitabh Bachchan, bemoans the Kohinoor's fate. The Kohinoor is still in Britain. This is just a replica. Diamonds from the mines of Golconda. I have very strong feelings about this. Sardamani Sharma is an Indian tourist I met at the fort. The British never apologized about anything. They're the ones who came and tried to quote-unquote civilize people, but civilized people don't steal and don't take away stuff and never return it. There are growing calls to return the diamond. But to where? India, Pakistan, Iran, Bangladesh? It spent time in all of those places. Even the Taliban claim it's theirs. Meanwhile, the British sell tickets to see the diamond. The exhibition explores the importance of the crown jewels to the British monarchy. And advertise it as a symbol of conquest. They've done so since 1851, when the Kohinoor was the star attraction at the World Exhibition in Hyde Park, London. It was for that exhibition that they cut it down, lopped off at least 85 carats. And to Indians, I mean, it's actually a perfect, perfect metaphor for what India went through, it was reshaped and recut and diminished into something that suited a British palate and, a, and, and British needs. Historian Anita Anand is Dalrymple's co-author and co-host of their podcast called Empire. We don't really learn about the history of empire. It's painted as if it was something very long ago, not really interesting, and yet it shapes the world that we live in today. It's always glimmered in, in my life. I mean, if you are a British Asian, you know about the Kohinoor. Last year, India and Pakistan celebrated 75 years since they won their freedom from the British crown. But for many, the story is incomplete. The British crown still has their diamond. It's still only worn by women, 
The last queen consort wore it to her coronation in 1937. Tradition says Camilla would wear it this weekend. It's a few days before King Charles' coronation, and I'm at the Tower of London where the crown jewels are kept. There are hundreds and hundreds of people waiting in line to see the jewels. And You're about to enter the crown jewels exhibition. So I'm on like a conveyor belt, a people mover that you have to stand on as you whiz past the crown jewels. Pearls, diamonds, crosses, rubies, emeralds. And I think that's the Kohinoor. Yes, and it's just sparkling. It's amazing. It's like the size of a walnut against a purple velvet crown. Um, yeah, the one of the reason to come here is the diamond from India, so we, we would like to see it here. That's Rudva Danalia. Behind her is Anjit, who goes by one name. They, and me, and almost half the people in here have just landed from India. Are you here to see it? Yeah, yeah. That was, that's what we want to see, actually. Mm -hmm. It's uh, some part of Indian culture. Maybe we should get it back. The Indian government has asked for that repeatedly. This winter, Buckingham Palace made a quiet announcement. Camilla will not wear the Kohinoor to her coronation. The diamond will remain locked in the Tower of London this weekend, firmly on British soil, but too sensitive to parade around. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, London. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, scientists have used brain scans and artificial intelligence to decode language signals and reconstruct the meaning of a stream of words. That story coming up in about five minutes. A windy afternoon, a pretty nice one, especially when the sun's beating back the clouds. Tonight should be windy again, some clouds around, some clear spots too. Then tomorrow, clouds, showers, maybe thunderstorms, temperatures reaching the mid-50s. 62 degrees now in Boston at 430. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com. I'm Daryl C. Murphy, host of WBUR's news and culture podcast, The Common. My mom is the anchor of the family, and without her love and support, I don't know if I'd be the person I am today. I am forever grateful. This Mother's Day, show some gratitude to your mom with Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll support local journalism that strengthens our community. Save 10% and choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden sought to reassure taxpayers today they won't be on the hook for bailing out a third regional bank that failed over the weekend. He made brief remarks about the sale of California-based First Republic Bank to J.P. Morgan Chase, the nation's biggest bank. Regulators have taken action to facilitate the sale of First Republic Bank and ensure that all depositors are protected and the taxpayers are not on the hook. These actions are going to make sure that the banking system is safe and sound, and that includes protecting small businesses across the country who need to make payroll for workers and their small businesses. Biden repeated calls for Congress to pass legislation to increase the penalties on bank executives for failures caused by mismanagement. J.P. Morgan Chase had to get special permission to take over its smaller rival. 
First Republic's failure is expected to cost the Federal Deposit Insurance Fund about $13 billion. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is expected to formally enter the GOP presidential primary later this month. As NPR's Kelsey Snell tells us, Scott will hold an event in three weeks in his home state. Senator Tim Scott has been touring the country after forming an exploratory committee to start raising funds for an eventual presidential run. He told supporters at a town hall that it was, quote, time to make the final step. Scott was first appointed to the Senate in 2013 after serving in the U.S. House and in the state legislature in South Carolina. He has a record as a reliable GOP vote and was a strong supporter of former President Donald Trump. Now, Scott is poised to join an increasingly crowded field of Republicans vying to offer voters an alternative to Trump, who remains the frontrunner for the GOP nomination. Kelsey Snell, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finish lower on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Hudson man faces an automatic sentence of life in prison after he was convicted today of a racially motivated murder in Belmont. Dean Capsalis and Henry Tapia got out of their cars and began arguing after a driving dispute it happened in January of 2021. Capsalis, who was white, yelled racial slurs at Tapia, who is black and Latino. Capsalis then got into his truck and drove it into Tapia, who died from his injuries. Capsalis was convicted of second-degree murder and civil rights violations. He will be sentenced in June. The U.S. Supreme Court will decide who should pay for federally mandated fishing monitors on commercial fishing boats. The lawsuit involves Atlantic herring fishermen off the East Coast. The fishery is based mostly in Massachusetts and Maine. Fishermen argue they should not be the ones to pay hundreds of dollars per trip for the monitors, which help enforce rules and regulators for the industry. Boston Celtics begin their second-round playoff action tonight at the Garden, where they host the Philadelphia 76ers. The Seas beat Atlanta in six games in round one, while Philly swept the Brooklyn Nets. WBR's Fausto Menard has a preview of tonight's Eastern Conference semifinal. The Celtics won three of four games against the Sixers in the regular season. But none of that matters now as both teams look to emerge victorious from their best-of-seven series and move on to the conference finals and then perhaps to the NBA finals. Boston should be at full strength for tonight's game, while Philadelphia All-Star center Joel Embiid is officially listed as doubtful after hurting his knee last week. The winner of this series will face the winner of the other Eastern Conference semifinal matchup between the Miami Heat and the New York Knicks. Tip-off tonight in Boston is set for 7.30. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. It's 4.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In the forecast, a strong wind blowing this afternoon. Windy again tonight, down around 47 degrees. Tomorrow should bring rain, maybe some thunderstorms off and on, with temperatures only reaching the mid-50s tomorrow. 62 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From BritBox with Sister Boniface Mysteries, brilliant crime-solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spinoff. 
available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The last time writers in Hollywood brought the film and TV industry to a halt was 15 years ago. And it sounded like this. On strike, shut it down. Hollywood's a union town. On strike, shut it down. Hollywood's a union town. That's a picket line from the 100-day walkout by the Writers Guild of America that brought significant disruptions to film and TV shows. The WGA's current contract with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers ends overnight tonight, bringing fears in Hollywood of another major strike. Here to discuss is NPR TV critic and media analyst Eric Deggins. Hey there. Hi. Hi. So give us a sense of what is at stake. Why is this industry on the verge of a strike right now? Well, the Writers Guild of America represents writers for TV shows, films, all kinds of products across network TV, cable, film studios, and streaming services. Now, the writers who are members of the union have told me that they feel like their compensation hasn't kept up with the times, particularly regarding streaming shows, and that studios have taken advantage of loopholes in their contracts to keep their pay low. Now, on the other side, the studios note that many major streaming services don't make a profit. Media companies are already cutting back and laying off work in fear of a recession, and the explosion of new content online has created more potential new jobs for WGA members. Um, when you say that union members say they don't feel their pay has kept up with the times, get, get specific. What kind of challenges do they say they face? Sure. Well, I recently talked to Bill Walkoff, who's a captain at the WGA, and he's a producer and writer on the Paramount Plus series Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And he said years ago, TV networks would pay writers by each episode in a series, and they would make a substantial number, say up to 26 episodes in a season. But in the streaming world, series can be as little as 8 or 10 episodes a season. TV studios might have all the scripts written in advance and not allow writers to work on the set as producers help to film them. So writers work for a shorter amount of time and it's tougher for them to learn the production skills that would help them move up the ladder. Now, Walkoff is hopeful that they're going to reach an agreement, but I've heard a lot of pessimism in Hollywood over the inevitability of at least a short strike because studios could use the work stoppage as an excuse to cancel some projects and because the WGA is determined to get a better deal. How might all this affect what we, what we viewers are going to get to see if a strike does in fact kick in after the contract expires tomorrow? Sure. Well, right away, uh, topical late night shows like Jimmy Kimmel Live, Saturday Night Live, The Daily Show, they would likely stop making new episodes. Uh, soap operas would also likely stop. Um, But streaming services in particular work really far in advance, so viewers might not see a change there until the the end of the year if the strike went that long. There's also some question about how easy it would be for studios to produce already written scripts, as some unions and their members, like the Teamsters, have said they might not cross WGA picket lines. But if a strike dragged on, you can expect to see more unscripted or reality TV shows and more new shows from Canada and other overseas markets. And what about impact on the industry uh, more broadly if a strike drags on? 
Well, you know, on TV, some promising shows could be canceled simply because they couldn't be finished or areas of the business that are struggling to attract viewers like late night TV would be challenged because they're airing reruns or there's fear that the strides made in diversity where women and people of color have gotten great production deals that could fall back. Mm -hmm. But what worries me most is that both sides face the same problem they had in 27 to in 2007 that technology's changing so fast it's hard for them to figure out a solution. It's like trying to change the tire on a car while it's running. All right. With that analogy in mind, we'll leave it there. NPR <laughs> TV critic Eric Deggins, thank you. Thank you. Coming up, we head to California with our co-host Elsa Chang. She met fans of East Wind Books in Berkeley during its last days. You and your bookstore, um, you really touched many, many people's lives. For decades, it was a major source of Asian American and other ethnic literature. But first, we head from the page to the brain. Scientists say they've found a new way to decode the stream of words and sentences in our heads. NPR's John Hamilton reports on a study that used MRI scans and artificial intelligence to transform a person's brain activity into phrases. Researchers at the University of Texas at Austin wanted to understand how the brain processes language. So Alexander Huth, a brain and computer scientist, says they had three people spend up to 16 hours in an fMRI scanner, listening to podcasts. For the most part, they just lay there and listen to mostly stories from the moth radio hour. Huth says those personal stories produced activity all over the brain, not just in areas associated with speech and language. It turns out that a huge amount of the brain is doing something. So areas that we use for navigation, areas that we use for doing mental math, areas that we use for processing what things feel like to touch. The team had a computer learn to match specific patterns of brain activity with certain streams of words. Then participants listened to some new stories, and the computer tried to reconstruct these stories from each person's brain activity. It got help from an early version of the natural language processing program, ChatGPT. Huth says the technology is far from perfect, but usually gets the gist of a story right. The real story said, I didn't even have my driver's license yet. And then the decoded version is, um, she hadn't even learned to drive yet. Huth says the system tends to mess up pronouns and rarely repeats the exact words a person was hearing or thinking. It's getting at, what are the ideas behind the words? The, the semantics, the meaning. The team confirmed that with a different experiment. They had the system decode participants' brain activity as they watched wordless videos. We didn't tell the subjects to, like, try to describe in your head what's happening. Just watch the video. Just enjoy the video. And yet what we got out was this kind of language description of, of what's going on in the video. The approach, described in the journal Nature Neuroscience, might someday help people who are paralyzed regain the ability to communicate. But Huth says this sort of technology might also be abused. This is very exciting, but it's also, like, a little scary. There are implications here in terms of like mental privacy, right? What if you can read out the words that somebody is just thinking in their head? That's like potentially a harmful thing. That's not possible now. Decoding only works when a participant is actively trying to help. But David Moses, a brain scientist at the University of California, San Francisco, says that might change someday. This is all about the user having a new way of communicating, a new tool that is totally in their control. You know, that's the goal. And we have to make sure that that stays the goal. Moses is part of a lab that's been using a different approach to detecting words in the brain. People get a sheet of electrical sensors implanted directly on the surface of the brain, and that records brain activity really close to the source. The implanted sensors are faster and more accurate, 
But Moses says there's one clear advantage with MRI. This is non-invasive. No one has to get brain surgery to use an MRI machine. Communication may be just one application for MRI-based language decoding. Marcel Just of Carnegie Mellon University says the technology could help scientists understand how conditions like suicidal depression or schizophrenia alter the brain. One of the biggest scientific medical challenges is understanding mental illness, which is a brain dysfunction ultimately. I think that this general kind of approach is going to solve that puzzle someday. Perhaps by going beyond mere words to reveal the stream of thoughts and ideas in a person's head. John Hamilton, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Brenda Arnold. About 40 years ago, when she was 18, Arnold planned a trip to visit her sister in Germany. The only information she had was her sister's address. After a long journey, Arnold finally arrived at her sister's door. But when she rang the bell, no one answered. And I started to get this sinking feeling, and I thought, oh, no, wait, she's not here. She's at work. She doesn't know that I'm here, and I have no way to reach her. And all of a sudden, my world just came crashing down around me. And I thought, I'm just going to sit down on my suitcase until I figure out what to do. People started walking by me, and then they said something to me. And I just looked up at them and shrugged my shoulders and said, I'm sorry, I don't speak any German. And then they just kept on walking until one particular lady came. She switched to English and I was totally blown away. She said, oh, are you okay? Is there something wrong? So I said, oh, yes, I'm an American. I'm here visiting my sister. Gave her my whole sob story. And then she said, oh, well, would you like to come home with me and I can fix you something to eat? And I thought, oh, are you kidding? So I, I went home with this lady who lived in the same apartment complex as my sister. And she sat me down at her kitchen table and started to fix me something to eat. And as she did that, then she told me her story. World War II had been over for about 35 years. So there were a lot of people around who had still experienced the war. And it turns out that her husband was one of those people. And he had been a prisoner of war in Louisiana. And he was there for like a year or two. And he had been treated very well. They put him to work on the farm, but he got plenty to eat and treated very well. So after the war, he came home. And they were so thankful that they vowed any time they met an American that they would be extremely nice to them and treat them kindly. And yeah, so that's what happened to me that day. I was the recipient of this kindness that had been extended to this woman's husband 40 years earlier. I just, it was amazing. It was amazing. It really left a really deep impression on me because she took me into her home and she had never seen me before. And it also gave me a very deep sense of how interconnected the world is. Brenda Arnold. A few years after this incident, she moved to Germany herself and now lives in Munich. 
You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Angie. Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered in about 20 minutes, a new project in North Carolina is using artificial intelligence to better understand and maybe reduce military suicide. And coming up next, an 89-year-old first-time cookbook author celebrates the cuisine of South Carolina's Gullah Geechee community. These stories and much more still ahead. It's 448. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum, online.merrimack.edu. Welch and Forbes, over 100 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families, welchforbes.com. And The Huntington, with Joy in Pandemic, a new play by Taylor Mack, directed by Loretta Greco, now through May 21st at the Calderwood BCA, huntingtontheater.org. The Red Hot Blue Jays will bring it to Fenway tonight for a four-game set. Corey Kluber throws the first pitch at 7-10. Jose Barrios will be on the mound for the Jays. Windy afternoon, a nice one, though, especially when the sun's shining through the clouds. Overnight tonight, windy, some clouds around as well. Temperatures right about 47 degrees. Then tomorrow, cloudy, rainy, temperatures in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. It's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO. My mother died 20 years ago on Valentine's Day, just a few months after her cancer diagnosis. After that, the post office forwarded all her mail to me a few states away. Even after she was gone, she got more mail than I ever did. Letters that painted a vivid picture of who she was. One from a former patient who had no idea my mom had died. Her foodie magazines, solicitations from political candidates. Then, a letter arrived from a good cause she'd given to for years wondering why her donations had stopped so suddenly. On the envelope in big, bold letters, it said, Natalie, where are you? We miss you. I miss her too, every day, after all these years. I wish she knew I'd come home to Boston, a city she loved, to run this station. She'd be so proud. My mom loved flowers too. Send Winston flowers to your mom and support WBUR, a really good cause. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Last year, we celebrated a chef who got a book deal at age 89. Emily Meggett from Edisto, South Carolina, was a queen of Gullah Geechee cooking, and her cookbook became a bestseller. NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siokas traveled to Edisto last spring to spend some time in Emily Meggett's kitchen. Meggett died on April 21st at age 90 after a brief illness. In tribute to her life, we're sharing her story again today. 
Edisto Island is a beautiful, quiet community of about 2,000 people, nearly an hour's drive south of Charleston. The roads are framed by massive oak trees draped with Spanish moss. There's a tang of sea salt in the air. Ms. Emily Meggett is known far and wide as the matriarch of Edisto. Go right to that drawer right to get a spoon. I'm with her in her cozy home kitchen, where she's going to teach me how to make a local classic, shrimp and grits with gravy. As she chops up some salt pork to get us started, I ask her what's the first thing she remembers making as a girl? Grits. Grits. <laughs> grits and the salt pork right here. Ms. Emily is Galagichi. Her community's ancestors were enslaved people from West and Central Africa. In their insulated locations throughout the coastal areas of the Carolinas, Georgia, and Florida, they managed to preserve much of their rich culture, language, and music. Her cookbook is called Gullah Geechee Home Cooking. Right now, Ms. Emily is focused on making her gravy. Salt pork, onion, flour, and some seasoning salt. That's it. Now you watch me every step of the way. She's stirring the pot constantly with her favorite spoon. This virtuoso in the kitchen doesn't bother with a whisk. Still, her gravy is as smooth as silk. I'm from the old school. And people would, you know, you add things to see how that's going to taste. But sometimes they, I think they jazz it up too much. This is a tradition, how I learned how to cook it. Wash the grits, wash your meat, fry your meat, put your onion in there, put your flour in there, make your gravy, and your seasoning. Nothing else. That's your tradition. Some of Ms. Emily's other recipes are intensely local, too, like her delicious Benny wafers, sweet little cookies made with local sesame seeds. Benny seeds were brought over from West Africa by enslaved people and became an important staple in their hidden gardens. Ms. Emily's family kept their own gardens at home. They grew their own vegetables, beans, and fruit. They raised hogs, chickens, and other livestock. They fished and hunted. So we even had our own rice pond when I was growing up. Ms. Emily's ancestors, like other enslaved people brought to the Carolinas, were expert rice cultivators. And rice remains foundational in Ms. Emily's cooking. She says if anyone's going to try only two recipes in her book, it's two Gullah Geechee staples. The red rice and the hopping john. Her beloved late husband, Jesse, grew up nearby, too, in a two-room cabin that previous generations had lived in as enslaved people. In 2017, that cabin was relocated to Washington, D.C., where it's now on permanent display at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. Ms. Emily, whom friends around the island call MP, recounts plenty of family stories as well as her own complex history in Gullah Geechee home cooking. When I came along, I guess I was the last, I was the last of the slaves. Because when I went out to babysit, I got a dollar and 25 cents from 8 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And that was in the 50s. Not long after, her mother told her she had to choose. She could either work in the fields or she could become a cook for wealthy white families. One of those was the Dodge family from Maine, and Ms. Emily cooked for them for 45 years. And then when I went over to the Dodge house, a week's pay was $11.13 a week. 
And every year, it went up a dollar and three penny. I start from the bottom of the barrel. Up to this time, I think I did good for myself and also my children, because if I wasn't taught what to do and how to do it, then I couldn't have taught my children. And those recipes are imprinted in her memory. That's how I cook. I cook by my brain and my hand and my heart. Heart is a big word with Ms. Emily. She has always looked after Edisto. When the side door into her kitchen is open, folks know they can stop in for a plate of hot food. Cooking for Miss Emily is about sharing history. And as she says in her book, food is one of the most important ways we can take care of each other. That was the whole impetus for her cookbook. A lot of times we has a treasure in our head and we would die and go to heaven and take that treasure with us. And why can't we just share it with somebody else here? I will get more out of that to share it. Gretchen Smith is the director of the Edisto Island Historic Preservation Society. She's thrilled that her good friend Emily Meggett is attracting so much attention with her cookbook. It's just got so much more than recipes in the book. It's stories, it's anecdotes, it's the culture of the Gullah community. I mean, it's, just, it's not just a cookbook by any means. And I think that's what really has ignited the interest in it. In the meantime, the gravy's ready. All right, now you see what I put in there? I didn't put no celery, no bell pepper, no tomato, or no other. At nearly the last moment, she sautés the shrimp in a separate skillet. They're done in just a couple of minutes, and she quickly folds them into the sauce. If you make the gravy Mm -hmm. and put the shrimp in there to cook, it makes it tough. Now you taste the um, gravy. Hot now. Okay, I got it. Thank you. Mm. you got to crunch the shrimp. She's absolutely right. The shrimp are firm and meaty, with almost a bit of a snap to them still. Finally, this tantalizing dish is ready, and you will never leave Miss Emily's house without getting fed. The whole entire world. <laughs> the whole entire world. It don't be a day pass by that somebody don't stop by here that don't get something to eat. As soon as the shrimp and grits are ready, we gather over the kitchen table for a moment of prayer, holding hands in communion. Ms. Emily says grace. Thank you for family and friend. These and all other blessings are messing in you. And then we feast together. Anastasia Tsilkas, NPR News. Once upon a time, she was all about that bass. These days, Megan Trainer is still a pop star, but also a mom and expecting again. She's written all about motherhood in a new book called Dear Future Mama. And she tells me about it tomorrow here on All Things Considered. So come on back and listen. You can listen on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You are listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Progressive, 
Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to develop new cancer therapies by attacking cancer through multiple pathways. More about this momentum of discovery at DanaFarber.org slash stories. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, empower a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Members of the U.S. Senate are putting pressure on Supreme Court justices to do a better job of policing their own ethical conduct. I think at a minimum, they need to do what every other court in the United States has done and establish a code of conduct for them to follow. It's Monday, the first day of May. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Saudi Arabia has become a destination for people who are fleeing the violence in Sudan. We will try to do whatever we can to alleviate the crisis and to uh, reduce tensions and promote dialogue. We'll hear from some of the evacuees. How artificial intelligence may be able to help reduce the high rate of suicides among members of the military. Also, the Bruins' stunning loss last night is just one of the wild developments in the NHL playoffs. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says the banking system is safe and sound after the collapse of First Republic Bank. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports Biden wants more to be done to prevent bank failures. President Biden stressed that taxpayers would not be bailing out a third regional bank that has failed in recent weeks. Speaking at a Rose Garden event for Small Business Week, Biden praised regulators who facilitated the sale of First Republic Bank to J.P. Morgan Chase. Let me be very clear. All depositors are being protected. Shareholders are losing their investments. And critically, taxpayers are not the ones that are on the hook. He said the measures would protect the banking system as well as small business owners who need to make payroll for their workers. He also called for Congress to pass legislation to increase penalties on bank executives for mismanagement that leads to such failures. Franco Ordonez. NPR News, the White House. Senate Democrats will hold hearings this week to take a closer look at Republican-backed legislation that would raise the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the bill, which narrowly passed the House last week, is contingent on deep cuts in government spending, something Democrats say is a non-starter. The public hearings are an attempt by Senate Democrats to pick apart the Republican legislation rather than take up the measure. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the Democratic-led effort will expose the true impact of the bill. We'll show the American people how the default act would rip away SNAP benefits for over a million recipients. We'll show the American people how the Default on America Act 
would raise taxes by over $500 billion over the next decade. Republicans have been locked in a months-long stalemate with Democrats over how to address the debt ceiling and the threat of a default, which could hit as soon as June if the borrowing limit isn't raised. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. It's Labor Day in Europe and other parts of the world. Across France, that means more big protests against President Emmanuel Macron's decision to increase the retirement age. Here's NPR's owner Beardsley. Thousands of people turned out in Paris's Place de la République to begin the traditional March for May Day. Marches across France are bigger this year and have taken on an angry tone. Macron pushed a law raising the retirement age through Parliament last month without a vote. Protesters say he used an undemocratic procedural measure because he lacked a majority. The move unleashed a wave of social unrest. People here say they will not stop protesting until Macron withdraws the law or resigns. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. The Federal Reserve begins a two-day meeting in Washington this week with expectations when the Fed's open market committee wraps up talks Wednesday to again announce a quarter of a point rise in its benchmark lending rate. Stocks fell on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 46 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Rabbi Harold Kushner is being remembered as a kind, considerate, and down-to-earth man. Remarks were delivered by Rabbi Ken Richmond of Temple Israel in Natick, where a funeral for Kushner was held this afternoon. Kushner served as a rabbi at the congregation for more than two decades. He was also an author who wrote more than two dozen books, including the bestseller When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Rabbi Richmond says Kushner never let fame go to his head. He was somebody that, you know, appeared on, on national television and, and Oprah and spoke, you know, at president's inaugurations and at their funerals. But he was somebody that was down to earth and, and funny and, and always interested in other people. Rabbi Harold Kushner died last Friday at the age of 88. Two men have been arrested today on weapons charges in an investigation into a shooting in Lawrence over the weekend. The shooting at a house party killed 18-year-old Desiderio Arias and five others were injured. Saul Enrique Morales Espinosa and Joshua Ramirez of Lawrence were charged with carrying loaded firearms without a license. Both Espinosa and Ramirez are hospitalized with gunshot wounds. They appeared in court remotely today for their arraignments. Police say the shooting is not believed to have been random. A new grassroots effort is underway in Greater Boston to help people avoid getting ticketed or towed. Tow Zone Alerts is a texting service that allows people or lets people alert others if their car is in danger of getting towed before it happens. Drivers register their cars and neighbors send license plate information to the service if they notice a car is parked illegally. Eli Silbert or uh, uh, Eli Silbert co-launched the service last month. We hope that like people will get some time back in their lives because they're not no longer having to go retrieve their cars, which can be quite a process depending on where it was towed to. And also, we hope that we're saving some money that people can keep in their wallets because the towing fees are a bit expensive. The service is currently available in Boston, Cambridge, and in Somerville. In the forecast, a strong wind out there right now. Pretty nice day. Should be partly cloudy overnight tonight, then heavy on the clouds tomorrow. Scattered showers. Temperatures tomorrow sticking to the mid-50s. 62 degrees now in the Boston area. It's 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It's playoff time in the National Hockey League, and already a lot of the top favorites are out. Elsewhere in the show, we're going to recap a wild first round and what it says about parity in the league. And on Capitol Hill, U.S. senators are proposing a binding code of ethics for the Supreme Court. That's outlined in a bipartisan bill introduced last week. And it's in response to what some people consider misconduct by the justices. Recent reporting found that Justice Clarence Thomas accepted luxury vacations from a billionaire Republican donor, and Justice Neil Gorsuch sold property to the head of a law firm that frequently appears before the court. Charles Jay is a law professor at Indiana University who focuses on judicial conduct and ethics. Professor Jay, welcome to All Things Considered. Good afternoon. The justices have unanimously signed a statement saying that they will voluntarily abide by existing standards that govern lower courts. First question for you, do you feel like that voluntary agreement they've made is sufficient? It is not. I don't think that they have really agreed to bind themselves to the code that the lower court adopts. They are simply saying that they have consulted it in the past, and there's a difference between consulting the code and creating a code for yourself. One of the criticisms I've read about the idea that they would have a code is that whereas lower court judges could be censured by a panel of fellow judges, the Supreme Court doesn't answer to other courts. So there would have to be some kind of investigative bureaucracy, which could certainly be controversial and potentially politicized. Certainly that's a possibility. My attitude is, for heaven's sake, folks, just adopt a code of conduct the way all other judges have done. But I think that recognizing that an enforcement mechanism of some kind is also desirable. I think it would be constitutional. And the way the bill is drafted, you know, it does not have real teeth. It really calls upon the chief justice to do some reporting. It authorizes investigations, but it doesn't require sanctions and suspensions and so on. I think it, it would allow for informal mechanisms to run their course. And, you know, my research regarding chief circuit judges around the country is that these informal mechanisms of being able to talk with judges when they run into trouble is really a very effective way of ensuring that judges behave ethically, honorably, and impartially. But you just said that the bill is drafted doesn't have real teeth. That makes me wonder how adequate a safeguard will it really be if it passes? Well, that's a good question, but I think that the drafters are mindful of the limits on the Constitution and creating mechanisms for the Supreme Court that are you know, the same as the mechanisms for the lower courts is problematic only because the Constitution regulates the lower courts and the Supreme Court differently. That said, Congress has already created mechanisms that force the Supreme Court to disqualify itself when its impartiality might be in question. It creates restrictions on the gifts it needs to report. So I think the bill is constitutional. But I understand we're going soft on the disciplinary mechanism as a first step here is the wise one. Well, you do seem to be getting at how this could be difficult to police the Supreme Court in a sense, because if we are going to have constitutional separation of powers and we can't have the executive or the legislature oversee the judiciary, who's the boss? Our system is premised on the notion that all three branches of government are co-equal. And so I have you know, spent my career devoted to the proposition that we do need to respect the independence of the judicial branch, and that does mean something. Uh, you know, what what irritates me, what makes me sort of angry about this situation is that the lower federal courts are really very good when Congress gets in their grill and starts telling them you're not doing something right. The Judicial Conference of the United States jumps in with an alternative and says, here's what 
we can do that can make this better, that respects the kind of the comedy between branches that we've got. And what the Supreme Court has been had for the last several years is overtures from Congress saying adopt a code. And the court has basically come back last week and said, the status quo is fine by us, go away. And to me, that's just tone deaf. Do you think that this most recent reporting about, as we said, what many people consider misconduct by the justices is going to make a difference and actually force an ethics code into place? It's a process. And I think it's just important to understand that this is a longstanding process. You know, that in the late 90s, Justice Ginsburg was presiding over cases in which her husband had stock in the parties. Uh, We have Justice Scalia a few years later vacationing with the vice president while the vice president has a case pending before him. We've got Scalia and Thomas both being featured speakers at Federalist Society fundraisers, which violated the code of conduct for lower court judges. And we have a litany of events in which the Supreme Court has not been mindful of the code applicable to lower federal courts. The latest is pushing the needle. I think there is now gathering pressure for the court to adopt a code. In my perfect world, the court gets the message and adopts a code and Congress can back off. But that's not been happening to date. The court is basically playing brinksmanship games that I think are unfortunate. That's law professor Charles Jay of Indiana University. Thank you very much. My pleasure. A new project by a North Carolina nonprofit group is using artificial intelligence to better understand and maybe reduce military suicide. The project is funded by the VA. It analyzes mobile phone data from people who take their own lives. Jay Price of member station WUNC reports. Like many of us, Army Captain Jim Gallagher could scarcely be separated from his smartphone. He and I were constantly texting throughout the day. That's his wife, Amanda. She lives in North Carolina with their three young daughters. And he would be on Twitter all the time, and he he was just always using his phone, like, to the point where we could get into arguments about, like, you know, you need to get off the phone and pay attention to what's going on here. Jim Gallagher was third-generation military, a West Point graduate who had fought in Iraq. Serving was everything to him, but he missed his first chance at promotion to major. He was devastated. He began talking less. He wasn't smiling as much. One night, he just curled up on the bed and broke down. And I said, you know, like, you need to go talk to somebody about this. And he promised that he would reach out to somebody. So we found online, like, a texting hotline that you could text and You don't even have to give your real name and stuff. And he said he was going to do that. And that week, he was better. That Saturday night, he wanted to make dinner. And he made my favorite foods. And he even made stuffed mushrooms. And he hates mushrooms, but he knows that I like them. Later, they were watching TV. He got up and told her he was going to the bathroom. Instead, he went into the garage and took his own life. Gallagher left his iPhone on the kitchen counter and wasn't wearing the Apple Watch that had become a constant presence on his wrist. So it actually surprised me when I found it in the house afterwards. Now his two laptops, tablet, and that phone, likely even containing data about his heart function and sleep patterns uploaded from his watch, are in the hands of the Black Box Project. The initiative, which won a $3 million VA grant, will use artificial intelligence to look for patterns and data from the devices of people who die by suicide. Our digital devices, especially smartphones, know more about us than things we've shared with even those we're closest to. Chris Ford leads the nonprofit group Stop Soldier Suicide, which runs the project. 
the inner thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, the things that I'm doing at two in the morning when I can't sleep, those don't get shared with our intimate partners. Those don't get shared with our parents or our friends. Ford says the devices, especially phones, contain some obvious data that might be useful, like texts, emails, browser and location histories. But the AI is also looking for patterns in less obvious data that might correlate with suicide risk, things researchers may not have even thought of yet. The project is just getting up to speed, but may already be about to disrupt some long-held beliefs among suicide researchers, such as the rarity of suicide notes. Most research studies indicate suicide notes happen 15 or 20 percent of the time. We're finding drafted and deleted suicide notes in at least half the devices. This is actually that phone? Dustin Mulatto, the digital forensics examiner for the project, points at a Samsung phone. It's hooked to a password-breaking device. Then he turns to his computer screen. A wavering line shows the former owner used the phone more than twice as much as normal in his last few months, and in a distinctive repeated wave pattern. And that would indicate maybe something or some kind of activity was going on that's also similar because of the fact that the angles are the same. Those unshared suicide messages, he said, often are found in a phone's notes app or even in an audio or video recording. It almost seems like they want to tell somebody what's going on, but they don't really want to tell like a person. Experts say results from the project obviously could apply to the non-military population, too, with caveats about the differences in the two groups. But they caution against expecting too much from technology. Craig Bryan is a professor at Ohio State University. Suicide has so many different possible combinations of variables and factors that there sort of are an infinite number of pathways to get there. He says predictive, analytic, large data approaches probably are never going to be able to forecast when, say, a specific person is going to attempt suicide. But like a tornado warning, the data could help signal when it's more likely. All of his possessions are, are really important to me, and they seem like such a limited resource. Amanda Gallagher is among more than 100 family members so far who have loaned devices to the project. Like, I have to repost the same pictures every year on his birthday because there aren't any new pictures. She says it was stressful to part with her husband's devices, even temporarily. But if it can prevent even one suicide, it's worth it. I knew that if there was a chance that another woman didn't have to sit in her child's bedroom and explain to them that their dad wasn't coming home because I was willing to let the phone go, then I should let the phone go. And with it, all that data that somehow now isn't just ones and zeros. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price in Durham, North Carolina. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. If you're a veteran, dial 988, then press 1 or text 838-255. It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, thousands of people are fleeing violence in Sudan, crossing the Red Sea on naval ships to Saudi Arabia, where they're telling their stories. That's coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work. Top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. 
bu.edu slash SSW. The Dow closed slightly lower after J.P. Morgan's takeover of First Republic Bank. The index lost just over a tenth of a percent today. S&P was down a tiny fraction. The Nasdaq dropped about a tenth of a percent. J.P. Morgan Chase's purchase of First Republic will speed up Morgan's expansion plan in Massachusetts. Last summer, the bank said it wants to have 90 retail branches in the state by 2025. The deal overnight adds five branches to the 43 J.P. Morgan Chase already has in Massachusetts. This is WBUR. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Zoo New England, Zoo What Makes You Happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham, zoonewengland.org. Shuttle buses will replace trains tonight and the next three nights on parts of the Blue Line. The shutdown will happen between Government Center and Wonderland stations from 8 tonight until the usual end of service. The MBTA says the nighttime shutdown is so track work can be done to let the T stop imposing slow zones on the line. A windy evening, pretty nice one, especially while the sun's beating back the clouds. Tonight should stay windy, a few clouds around, along with some clear spots, and then tomorrow, more clouds than anything else. Showers, maybe some thunderstorms, just reaching about the mid-50s. 61 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Scripps News, committed to objective reporting that illuminates and informs the whole story. Available live with a TV antenna or streaming device. More at scriptsnews.com forward slash TV. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. We're going to take you now into a tiny bookstore in Berkeley, California, a set of pale yellow walls and chipped tile floors that has for decades anchored the Asian American community here. Hello, hello. Listen how echoey it sounds here. Does it sound too echoey to you right now? I, yeah, it is a little echoey. Because, uh, <laughs> it's an empty room now. All the shelves um, are gone. Right there, as soon as you come in the door, a person would greet the uh, customers. Yesterday, Eastwind Books of Berkeley closed its doors for the final time. The The owners, Harvey Dong and his wife Beatrice, are now in their 70s. They've decided it was just time to close up shop. On your right would be literature from China, Japan, Philippines, social movements, activism... They're so used to seeing this place packed with books. But, you know, East Wind, it was never just about the books. It was an idea, one about convening community, which is exactly what happened at an event in Berkeley last week, where scholars and writers Janet Stickman, Dixon Lamb, and Keith Feldman shared their memories. East Wind Books was the only bookstore that always made it clear to me there was a place for me as a Black Apina author. It made me feel Asian-American. It made me proud to be Asian American. It's such a powerful reminder the bookstore has been, not simply or solely as a container of something, but as a real catalyst for building the worlds we want to see. This idea to build a bookstore, and in doing so to build a community, 
It started long before the Dongs ever owned this particular storefront in Berkeley. Their story goes back to the end of the 1960s, when Harvey and Beatrice joined a wave of student-led protests to establish an ethnic studies department at UC Berkeley. Across the Bay, in San Francisco's Manila town, they were also fighting for housing rights for working-class Chinese and Filipino people. And it was there, in Manila town, that Harvey and nine friends each threw in $50 apiece to open a little shop called Everybody's Bookstore. It was right by Tino's Barbershop, where a quartet of Filipino men often jammed on their guitars. Nearby was the ever-popular Club Mandalay. You would hear music, but then sometimes you might, the music might stop, and then you might hear, like, wine bottles hitting the floor or something, and, and, and there's just like a fight outside. <laughs> Everybody's Bookstore was one of the country's first Asian-American bookstores, stocking literature from the People's Republic of China, leftist papers, and magazines from Hong Kong and Macau. Dong says... The very idea of a store like this was radical at the time. There was always the threat of vandalism from anti-communist corners of the Chinese-American community. We had to put on the heavy plywood over the plate glass. So you might have like four locks holding the plywood down. Wow. Was that kind of a scary time? It was something that we learned to deal with. Everybody's bookstore endured for 10 years before closing in 1980. But... A new gathering place for Asian-American literature emerged, a small chain called East Wind Books and Arts. For years, Harvey and Beatrice were just customers there, and then in 1996, they took over the Berkeley store. They envisioned East Wind as a place that would build coalitions, not just within the Asian-American community, but across all kinds of marginalized groups so that movements could learn from each other. Harvey recalled this one event where a group of Southeast Asian refugee student organizers encountered Bobby Seale, co-founder of the Black Panthers. I remember from that one meeting, I think it was the the book was Black Against Empire. At that meeting, um, the Southeast Asian uh, student group was doing some labor organizing and they wanted to invite Bobby Seale to go and speak about the black experience. So they come here, they meet, they share, and, and then all of a sudden new connections are made. And then yeah, I think the, um, the Asian American community still has a ways to go as far as making alliances with other peoples of color, other nationalities. Uh, it's important to fight for Asian American rights, but it has to be more of a, like a, a broader whole of society approach. Well, when you first announced that this store, the brick and mortar version of the store was closing, what was the initial response you got? Some sadness. Some people thanked us. There was a lady who came. uh, She was an immigrant woman from, I think, Hong Kong or China. Put her son in front of the store and took a picture of this little two-foot-tall kid in front of the bookstore. How did that make you feel to watch that unfold? Oh, I I, I was touched by it because I I was just kind of... They wanted the future to remember this place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I want you to just sit with that, Harvey. Yeah, it was. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it was kind of hard to comprehend. Let's say. Yeah. You know, because it's something you do every day. You did it for 27 years, and then and finally on the very last day, it all kind of comes to a certain point. 
Can I just say, Harvey, you and I have been talking this afternoon for quite some time, and I've been asking you a series of questions to get you to brag about this heroic role that you have played in the history of this community in Asian American activism. And I feel, as we're talking, I feel your humility, your modesty, and almost your your resistance to taking too much credit. It, it, what am I? What am I feeling there? Well, I, I, I'd say that my own experience and commitment has always been related to the idea that it's important to do that. You know, important to share ideas about ethnic studies or Asian American literature. Yeah. So. There's nothing really to brag about. <laughs> I don't think. You're just trying I, to get people to think and read I, and share. I, I, I did get picked to toss the ball at the uh, A's game. Nice. For Asian Heritage Month. <laughs> That's something to brag about. Well, even if Harvey Dong won't brag, there are a lot of people who will do so on his behalf. People like Jade Lin, a student at UC Berkeley who's been going to Eastwind for years. It was the first time that I've encountered a place where you didn't have to dig into every crevice and search in every corner to find ethnic literature. You finally find one. It's a travel brochure to Asia. Check out the lanterns, you know? Like, and, and that was really beautiful for me. And I just want to say to B and Harvey that I hope that our younger generation can continue to carry the torch on this. And we're going to continue trying to open people's eyes to the necessity of including people's stories that reflect something closer to ourselves. So thank you so much. And as the stories of East Wind pour in, Harvey Dong wants to remind people those stories, they aren't eulogies. Uh, today's not, it's not like a wake or a, a funeral. <laughs> no, 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 one's, no one's died, you know. <laughs> uh, but, but in fact, uh, it, I think you could put it as this is like a beginning, you know. Because in fact, Harvey and Beatrice say they will continue to curate the shelves of their bookstore, but online. And they hope the spirit of Eastwind, this idea that there is power in community, that that will carry on. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the NHL playoffs, even without the Bruins. Also, mortgage rates are still up and down, but some homeowners are not waiting for the perfect time to buy. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with a new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store. This is WBUR 60 degrees now in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. And Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. I'm WBUR reporter Simone Rios. My mom gave me my love for language, a sense of curiosity, and ideals like patience and open-mindedness. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support and strengthen journalism that feeds your curiosity. 
Choose your perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. New information from the White House today about Russia's invasion of Ukraine more than a year ago. It estimates since December that Russia has suffered 100,000 casualties, including more than 20,000 killed, as Ukrainian troops repelled a heavy assault in the eastern part of the country. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says nearly half of those killed were from the Wagner mercenary group who have been trying to gain control of the city of Bakhmut. The only area where Russia has made some incremental gains, and I want to focus on the word incremental, is in Bakhmut. And that really holds, as we've said before, very little strategic value for Russia. The capture of Bakhmut would absolutely not alter the course of the war in Russia's favor. Ukrainian troops have been readying for a spring offensive to counter stepped-up attacks from Russia. A board appointed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to oversee Disney's properties in central Florida has voted to countersue the company in state court after Disney filed suit last week claiming government retaliation. Joe Burns of member station WMFE has more. The new board will seek to invalidate the previous board's preemptive agreement that surrendered a lot of its authority to Disney. Here's Chairman Martin Garcia. This district will seek justice in state court here in Central Florida, where both it and Disney reside and do business. DeSantis and GOP lawmakers had revoked Disney's control of its special district after the company opposed a law barring instruction in early grades about sexual orientation or gender identity. Last week, Disney answered with a federal suit, claiming it was targeted for government retaliation. Garcia says the board has no choice but to respond. For NPR News, I'm Joe Burns in Ocala, Florida. Stocks finish mostly lower on Wall Street today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A leak from a rooftop air conditioning unit is being blamed for a health scare at a West Newbury school today. Pentucket Regional Middle High School was evacuated this morning after several students in a 7th grade science lab began to complain about a strange odor. Four students retreated to local hospitals for nausea and throat irritation. Classes and after-school activities at the school were canceled. The former deputy chief of police in Hopkinton has been indicted on charges of raping a child. Middlesex DA Marion Ryan says John Porter allegedly assaulted a teenager nearly 20 years ago while he was a school resource officer. Ryan says Porter became acquainted with the victim while at the high school. The victim in that case, who was then 15 years old, um, and on a number of occasions allegedly sexually assaulted her off of school property. Porter was placed on administrative leave last August. The Hopkinton town manager says as of last Friday, Porter is no longer a member of the police department. An arraignment date has not been set yet. Massachusetts Secretary of State's office is fining a Missouri-based brokerage and investment firm $2.5 million. Stifle Nicholas and Company is accused of turning a blind eye toward one of its former agent's business practices. The agent, Joseph Crespi, is accused of using predatory sales tactics with elderly clients, nonprofit organizations, and churches in order to boost his commissions. The company is also being ordered to pay more than $700,000 in restitution to affected customers in the state. Aerosmith is going to be touring one last time. The Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, originally from Boston, announced dates today for their farewell tour. Guitarist Joe Perry says with all the band's founding members now over the age of 70, it's the right 
great time to say goodbye. The tour includes a stop at Boston's TD Garden on New Year's Eve. It's 5.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theatre with How High the Moon, the music of Ella Fitzgerald, a concert tribute to the First Lady of Song starting May 3rd. Tickets at MRT.org. And UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. It's been a pretty nice day today. Partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, still windy, down around 47. Tomorrow should bring lots of clouds and plenty of rain, maybe some thunderstorms as well. Temperatures staying in the mid to upper 50s. 60 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Thousands of people, anxious and exhausted, are making their way out of Sudan and telling their stories. There is another ceasefire declared now between the warring factions, but these ceasefires have frequently been broken. Border crossings out of the country are jammed, prompting some in Sudan to make long road trips to ships on the Red Sea. NPR's Ea Batrawi in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, was there to meet them at the port. I board a bus carrying evacuees that have just arrived to Saudi Arabia after crossing the Red Sea. They came here on a U.S. naval ship from Sudan. I ask if there are any Americans on the bus. Ghalia Sati is seated in the second row, tears streaming down her face as she tells me, yes, she's from the U.S. I've been living in Khartoum maybe for 11 years since I came from USA. How does it feel to just have everything uprooted so fast? Actually, I can't express my feeling. It's so sad. This is the most sad thing that happened to me in my life. Thank God we are safe. But we are scared that the people that we love, we left them there and we don't know if we can meet them again or not. The people she loves and left behind include her husband and her father. She fled with her four teenage children. She has a sister in the U.S. who she'll stay with for now. Seated in front of her is a Sudanese-British couple with a three-week-old baby in their lap and a toddler. Mohamed Kodak says his wife was terrified and crying every night to the sound of fighter jets and anti-aircraft fire. He's also fighting back tears as he tells me about his relatives stuck back in Sudan. Everything is one step at a time. I mean, we're trying to get them to safety first so I can get to work so I can keep things going. It's, uh, it's pretty tough. Huh? But they are among the lucky ones with foreign passports, safe and in Saudi Arabia now after hours or even days of waiting in Port Sudan. It's a 10 to 12 hour voyage across the Red Sea to Jeddah. Saudi Arabia has become a major hub for evacuation efforts and has sent warships to help people leave. Saudi spokesman Fahad Nazar says the kingdom is geographically and politically well-placed to even mediate in Sudan. You know, we are, I think, uniquely positioned not just to lead this effort, but frankly, I think we're uniquely 
position to help mediate this effort. So we will try to do whatever we can to alleviate the crisis and to uh, reduce tensions and uh, promote dialogue. The kingdom is only allowing in foreign expats from Sudan, and just temporarily. It's not hosting Sudanese refugees. At the port, I see how the kingdom is greeting people evacuated on an Indian warship from Sudan. It's clear from the Saudi flags that are um, about to be handed out to the Indian evacuees and the roses that uh, two female Saudi officers are holding to also pass out to the evacuees as they land, that this is um, a photo op, really, for, for the kingdom and an opportunity to showcase their uh, humanitarian role in accepting citizens of other countries fleeing the fighting in Sudan. A 17-year-old girl disembarks. We're not naming her because she's a minor, but she tells me she's anxious about life in Mumbai after growing up in Sudan. I was in uh, the last year of school, so it was just two months left for my exams. Now I had to leave the country and I don't know how I'm going to feel. The fighting forced Dimpal Jelani and her husband to leave their jobs in Sudan. But she's not yet ready to say goodbye to the life she had there. As early as possible, if Sudan has good uh, situation, we'll definitely come back. Really? You love it there? This is here. Everything is here. We can't leave and go like this. So we'll definitely come back, return back. But if the fighting drags on, life in Sudan as people once knew it might never look the same. Aya Batrawi, NPR News. Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Now let's talk about something completely different, hockey. So far in the NHL playoffs, lots of surprises. The last two teams to win the Stanley Cup have been ousted. So has the team with the most regular season wins in league history. We've also already seen 14 overtime games and we're not even done with the first round. Dan Rosen is a senior writer with NHL.com and he's been covering this frenetic situation. Hi, Dan. Hi, how are you? Good. Dan, I live in Boston, and so anyone in ah. Boston who loves hockey is in a state of deep shock and mourning today about what happened last night. They probably consider that the biggest story so far in the playoffs. But what do you consider the biggest stories from this first playoff round? Well, it's that. It has to be. I mean, this is you're talking about a team that set the NHL record for most wins with 65 and points with 135 in the season. And they were playing a team that had... Not, I think they, the Panthers had 92 points. They barely got into the playoffs. And on top of that, you have the Boston Bruins up 3-1 to one in the series. And Brad Marchand for the Bruins has a breakaway, you know, at the end of game five and, and can't put it in. If he puts that in with two seconds left to go in the game, series over, and Florida comes back and they win it instead in overtime. Which So that's the biggest story. There is no question about it. Um there is nothing bigger than that upset. But the other huge story, there are two. I mean, the Game 7 of the Rangers-Devils, that's the huge rivalry locally for the Hudson River rivalry. But the Toronto Maple Leafs also getting out of the first round is a huge story, especially up in Toronto. I mean, you're talking about a team that, that had not gotten out of the first round of the playoffs since 2004. What about Tampa Bay and Colorado being out? These are the teams that had won the Stanley Cup in recent years. Was that that you consider that a big surprise as well? Not a huge surprise. Tampa Bay, not so less of a surprise. I mean, you're talking about the Tampa Bay Lightning, who had been to the Stanley Cup final three straight years, playing against the Toronto Maple Leafs, who made a lot of moves at the NHL trade deadline to improve their team, uh, to play a playoff style hockey, and. 
it didn't shock me that Tampa Bay lost. Eventually, that run had to come to an end. Uh, it's just it's, they played almost an extra season. I think they played 77 playoff games over the past four postseasons. That's almost an extra full season of hockey. So that's not <laughs> – They're tired. Know, they're tired. That's not surprising to me. Uh, the avalanche is a little bit more surprising but also, if you look at Seattle, the Kraken this season, they relied on number of players and their depth all season, and they did in this series, whereas the Avalanche were missing a bunch of key guys that helped them win the Stanley Cup last season, and that was they were, they were thinner. They, they had the better talent, high-end talent, but they were way thinner, so it wasn't that shocking that they lose. Dan, we mentioned 14 overtime games in the first round. That seems like a lot. What accounts for that? Well, it's parody. This NHL has got so much parody into in it right now, and it, you saw it in Game Sevens last night. Meaning, you well matched it. in a sense. Yeah, well, well matched. I mean, these teams. The salary cap in the National Hockey League creates. Uh, it, it takes away advantages for big market teams versus small market teams. There, there is what you see in baseball. You don't necessarily see in the NHL. So the salary cap creates that parity, and it and it really has an anybody can win situation. We saw it last night. We saw it in Game Seven. Seattle goes on the road, wins a Game Seven against the defending champs. Florida goes on the road, wins a Game Seven against a team that set all kinds of records in the season. That is Dan Rosen from NHL.com. Dan, for thanks for filling us in on this wild playoff round so far. Thanks for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Home mortgage interest rates are now close to 7%, making it a tough time to buy a house. Prices are still way higher than they were a few years ago, too. Some people are still buying, though. NPR's Juma Say reports on why. Sharif Benson has lived in apartments all his life, not just with his family growing up in Dallas, but in college, graduate school, and postgrad, too. Now a pharmacist in Columbus, Ohio, Benson is 30 and doesn't want to live in tiny apartments anymore. If there was a great time, I've basically already missed it. And if I waited around for another perfect opportunity where prices were low and rates were low, I might be waiting another lifetime. He started looking early last year, and the goal wasn't just to find a place that he could call his own. Benson's parents are from Nigeria, and he's the oldest of his three siblings. Being a first-generation, you know, American, there's the idea that I want to take care of my parents when I'm older, and I can't do that renting someone else's space. Buying his own place would also make him the first homeowner in his family, which is important to him as a black American. In terms of, you know, building generational wealth, which you hear over and over again, it sounds like a cliche now, but like, if you're going to pay money to live somewhere anyway, why not own the place you stay? But the supply of available homes nationwide has been unusually low for years. During the pandemic, that tight supply, combined with super low interest rates, sent home prices through the roof. From 2019 to 2022, they rose about 40%. Prices have begun to fall just a little, about 2% since this time last year. But today's much higher interest rates still make buying just about as expensive as it's ever been. So a lot fewer people are looking to buy right now. This time last year, it was just crazy. It was a feeding frenzy. It's almost like, you know, piranha in the water and the water was just bubbling and everything. Donald Payne has been selling homes in Columbus for over two decades. He says things aren't as hectic as they were during the pandemic, 
but still his advice to buyers is the same. You see it, you like it, you try your best to lock it down right now. Because if you, if, you, if you sleep till tomorrow, it's gone. Lisa Sturdivant is the chief economist at the real estate agency Bright MLS. She says across the nation, first-time homebuyers are finding new, non-traditional ways to make things affordable, like living with their parents. So we're finding that people are having to get more creative, whether it's through multi-generational living or buying in parts of the country that folks maybe hadn't expected to because they can now work remotely. She also says that a lot of people will need to be creative because she doesn't see prices falling much further. This is the living room here. Nice open space. In Columbus, being creative paid off for Sharif Benson. He's found this duplex that he's buying with a friend. Their plan is to live in one of the duplex's units and rents out the other. As a pharmacist, Benson also got a special kind of healthcare professional loan. It's the only way he's been able to make this dream a reality. Touring the property one last time before closing, Benson says he's excited for the years ahead. It feels like a surreal moment coming out of or what feels like coming out of the pandemic and being able to take a little bit more control of my life. And it gives me a lot of hope and a lot of happiness, actually. In a small room in the corner of the top floor with a window overlooking the street, Benson says he's overwhelmed that soon he's going to call this corner of Southeast Columbus home. I think this will be my neighborhood. It's a lovely neighborhood. (laughs) My neighborhood. (sighs) Juma say NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the J.P. Morgan Chase takeover of First Republic Bank, how it may renew political debate about financial regulation and the power of America's largest banks. And coming up next, the author of Late Bloomers, about a family whose parents have just divorced after 36 years of an arranged marriage. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Tonight at the Garden, another playoff game. This time, though, it's the Celtics playing game one of the Eastern Conference semifinals against the Philadelphia 76ers. Tip-off time tonight at 7.30. The Red Hot Blue Jays will bring it to Fenway Park tonight for a four-game set. Corey Kluber throws the first pitch at 7.10. Jose Barrios will be on the mound for Boston. Partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Windy still down around 47 degrees. Then for tomorrow, should have some thunderstorms off and on during the day. Lots of clouds through the day. Still windy. Temperatures in the mid-50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra with Benjamin Zander, performing Mahler's Second Symphony with Chorus Pro Musica at Symphony Hall May 3rd, bostonphil.org. I'm Rupa Shinoy, host of WBMart's Morning Edition. My mom gave me the gift of my family's food, from dal to chicken curry. She taught me to make them the way she and her mom made them, but she also encouraged me to make my own changes. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with Winston Flowers from WBUR. Your gift will strengthen journalism that fosters independent thinking. Save 10% and choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Is it ever too late to start over? And if it's not, how does a person do that? Those are the questions at the heart of Deepa Varadarajan's debut novel, Late Bloomers. It's the story of the Raman family, daughter Priya, son Nikesh, and parents Suresh and Lata, who've just divorced after 36 years of an arranged marriage. So Lata, she has a job uh, outside the home for the first time. She's working at a university library and she loves it. And a professor there asks her out. And uh, it's a very new and nerve wracking experience for her. Lata is nervous about starting a new relationship. Suresh is lonely and uses online dating to try to find a wife. When he does it, he starts realizing, well, people are lying in their profiles. And the funny thing is, you know, he is too, but when he does it, he doesn't think of it as lying. He thinks of it as these reasonable deviations from truth. A story about dating for the first time in middle age and unhappy adult children could be depressing, but in Varadarajan's hands, it's human and funny. I have always been drawn as a reader to books that manage to combine these elements of humor and heartbreak. I I admire that a lot. And so I knew that when I was writing a novel, I wanted to incorporate these elements of humor. Sometimes I was less confident about my ability to pull that off, but I really knew I wanted to try. And there are these serious situations in the book, things that people are grappling with, like divorce and aging and adult sibling relationships and parental anxieties. There are also characters that are trying for a second act and trying for reinvention and trying these new things. And so there's a lot of opportunities for humor in in the things that they're doing as well. You said you thought that might be hard for you to pull off. Why did you think that? I think sometimes it can be hard to combine those elements of humor and heartbreak. So when you are talking about something serious like divorce or regretting these paths you didn't take in life. You don't want to make light of those things. So choosing the moments to incorporate humor and how to do it, I think that can be a challenge. And so it, it took, for me, a good deal of writing and rewriting to, to try to get that balance right. Deepa, your book shows us an arranged marriage that ultimately didn't work out. But I read that your own parents had an arranged marriage and they've stayed married nearly five decades and they seem to be happy. What's your view, as an Indian woman yourself, of whether successful arranged marriages are more a matter of luck or or work over time? Well, I think all marriages, whatever their origins, uh, require work. Uh, And as you say, I am the product of a very happy arranged marriage. My parents have been married, married for almost 50 years, and they are a very compatible couple. They have a great relationship. Um, But any relationship, whatever its origins, take work and compromise and, you know, having reasonable expectations. But with an arranged marriage, you don't have the opportunity that people who have a relationship that begins more organically to vet each other to decide if you're compatible. So I think there is a fundamental difference. That is true in the sense that it it requires more luck, I guess, in that way. You, You sort of uh, hope that you your personalities are compatible. Uh, and, you know, certainly Nikesh, their son, really thinks his parents were this accident of timing, right? That if they had been born at a later date, they could have had a chance to meet. They could have, like many of his 
relatives in India or his parents, younger relatives in India, uh, they could have had this different model where their parents are introducing them to someone, but they have this chance to hang out alone and, and see if, if they're going to be a good fit. Your book shows a clash of generations and how different generations take different approaches to love and relationships. Do you think any generation has figured it out or are we all just muddling along no matter how old we are? Yeah, I don't think any generation has it figured out. I mean, I think definitely we are <laughs> all muddling along. And the thing that I think is sort of interesting about the story is that all four of these individuals are going through this relationship turmoil at the same time. So none of them have it figured out. <laughs> <laughs> There's a line where the son is reflecting on his parents having gotten divorced and, and trying to date again. And he says, there was something admirable about what they were doing, this trying to start over thing. That made me wonder if you personally believe it's ever too late to start over. I don't. I mean, I this book is very much about reinvention and second chances. And I'm always fascinated by that question of it's ever too late to have a second act. And I don't think so. I don't think it's too late to try for the things you care about. Uh, I don't think it's too late to try for a new relationship. And maybe to some extent, you know, I'm also, I think about that just even in terms of this novel. Um, I'm sort of a late bloomer when it comes to writing fiction. I'm a debut <laughs> novelist in my mid-40s, you know, so <laughs> I definitely believe in second acts. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the title late bloomer does seem to apply to you because you had or have a law career. You, you did your writing, as I understand it, while you were working at a law firm and clerking for a judge and teaching law. Do you view yourself as starting over, in a sense, by writing this? In a way, this is certainly a very new experience for me, um, this process of, of publishing a book. And, uh, you know, it's something that's very different than my academic life in, in many ways. Um, but it's a dream that I've had for a very long time to uh, be a published writer. And I'm, I'm excited that it's happening. You know, every good novel is both a story that also contains larger messages about life, things we can learn from other writers about life. How much of your book did you want to be just a good, interesting, entertaining story and, and something that tells people about relationships and options and, and love? What did, what's the balance of those two things for you? I definitely wanted this to be a story that brings people joy. I wanted it to be a hopeful story. Um, but I do hope people gain these insights about love and relationships and reinvention and second chances. Um, I think some things that people can take away from this book is that it is never too late for a second act. It's, it's never too late to try for something you care about. And sometimes our family members change and evolve in these ways that we struggle to accept. But when we do, we, we can grow together in ways that we didn't anticipate. That's author Deepa Varadarajan. Her debut novel is Late Bloomers. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is 90.9 WBUR. Pretty windy out there still. Should stay windy overnight tonight. Some clouds around, also some clear spots. And for tomorrow, overcast, showery, maybe some thunderstorms. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Look for more clouds and a few showers ahead on Wednesday. High temperatures about 60. That's where it is right now in the Boston area. 60 degrees at 559. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham. Farm-to-table meals to go twice a week, plus an expanded catering menu for spring festivities. Online at volantefarms.com. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Markets dipped today after the failure of San Francisco-based First Republic Bank, the second-largest bank failure in U.S. history and the third in the country since March. Today is Monday, May 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, a new electronic health record system for veterans has been mired with troubles, and as a result, patients have suffered. You cannot do this to people. You cannot do this to veterans. This is health care. This is life and death. Coming up, we'll hear from veterans who've suffered because of the problems in the system. And the story of the diamond passed through Persian and Afghan hands before it ended up in England. Also, the story of why it will not be on display at Charles's coronation this weekend. It's 6.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Another U.S. bank has failed the third in two months. Regulators closed First Republic Bank. Then, as NPR's David Gurra reports, J.P. Morgan Chase moved in to buy up its deposits and most of its assets. This part of the crisis is over. That's what J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon told Wall Street analysts on a call after J.P. Morgan bought First Republic Bank overnight. Its collapse played out over several weeks after Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank failed. First Republic's efforts to reassure customers and investors didn't work. And in the end, First Republic couldn't find a buyer on its own. Customers withdrew more than $100 billion in deposits, and First Republic's stock sank. Today, J.P. Morgan shares traded higher. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Still no progress in the search for a man accused of killing five of his neighbors over the weekend near Houston. The shooting happened 
after the neighbors asked the man to stop firing his AR-15 outside. Houston Public Media's Jack Williams has more. 38-year-old Francisco Oropeza has been on the run since investigators say he gunned down four adults and a nine-year-old boy late Friday night in Cleveland, Texas, about 45 miles from Houston. Authorities spent part of the weekend going door-to-door looking for Oropeza. James Smith is with the FBI's Houston office. We have over 200 law enforcement personnel from federal, state, and local agencies trying to bring this subject into custody. There's a reward of $80,000 for information leading to Oropeza's arrest. FBI investigators say they have no idea where he is as the search continues. For NPR News, I'm Jack Williams in Houston. Senator Ben Cardin will not be seeking re-election in 2024. As NPR's Barbara Spron explains, the Maryland Democrats' announcement creates an open race to succeed him in the blue state. A long-standing fixture in Maryland politics, Cardin was first elected to the Maryland House of Delegates in 1966 while still in law school. He went on to serve as one of the youngest speakers in Maryland history and served in the U.S. House before being elected to the U.S. Senate in 2006. In a video announcing his retirement, Ben Cardin pointed to his legislative accomplishments in the national security and healthcare arenas and to addressing small business concerns during his tenure as chair of the Senate Small Business and Entrepreneurship Committee. His retirement announcement sets the stage for what's likely to be a highly competitive Democratic primary race. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News. Washington. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are taking turns blasting one another for failing to take action over raising the debt ceiling. Biden has said the nation's borrowing limit should be raised without condition. McCarthy is tying the debt ceiling increase to cuts in government spending. Biden has called a May 9th meeting on that matter. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Tents belonging to people experiencing homelessness are being taken down near the intersection of Mass Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard in Boston. Today, the city reinstated or restarted enforcing its tent removal policy. Enforcement was put on hold during the winter. Last week, the city began to alert people living in the encampment. Kelly Turley with the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless is watching what's happening. Wanting to make sure that the people most impacted are part of the conversation and making the decisions and that people's rights and autonomy are respected um, as encampments are, are taken down. Turley is urging the legislature to pass a bill of rights for people who are unhoused. She says that would ensure people's rights to eat and rest in public. The city of Boston plans to close three COVID-19 vaccination and testing sites on March 13th. The city says all the sites have been seeing a steady decline in patient volume. The three sites are in Hyde Park, Alston, and Dorchester. Two additional venues remain open in Roxbury and at Boston City Hall. Boston Celtics began a second-round playoff action tonight at the Garden, where they host the Philadelphia 76ers. The Seas beat Atlanta in six games in round one, while Philadelphia swept the Brooklyn Nets. WBR's Fausto Menard has a preview of tonight's Eastern Conference semifinal. The Celtics won three of four games against the Sixers in the regular season, but none of that matters now as both teams look to emerge victorious from their best-of-seven series and move on to the conference finals and then perhaps to the NBA finals. Boston should be at full strength for tonight's game, while Philadelphia All-Star center Joel Embiid is officially listed as doubtful after hurting his knee last week. The winner of this series will face the winner of the other Eastern Conference semifinal matchup between the Miami Heat and the New York Knicks. Tip-off tonight in Boston is set for 7.30. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. 
The sky should turn partly cloudy overnight tonight, temperatures dropping to the mid-40s. And for tomorrow, gray in a big way. Wet, too. Thunderstorms possible off and on. Some strong winds should reach about 57 degrees. 59 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In the banking panic of 1907, J.P. Morgan came to the rescue. He and other financiers used their own money to prop up the U.S. banking system. Well, this weekend, it was J.P. Morgan Chase. America's biggest bank bought most of the assets of First Republic Bank in a fire sale after First Republic was taken over by regulators. It is the third big bank to fail this spring. NPR Scott Horsley is here. Hey, Scott. Hi, good to be with you. Hi, good to be with you. It's so interesting to remember the history there. Talk us through how this latest takeover came about. Well, First Republic has been hanging by a thread, really, ever since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank back in March. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and other big banks had tried to prop it up by depositing $30 billion at First Republic, but that was just a holding action. Last week, we learned the bank lost $100 billion worth of deposits during the Silicon Valley contagion. And when that news got out, the company's stock fell to nearly nothing. Uh, eventually, regulators stepped in and took over, and J.P. Morgan Chase agreed to buy what's left of First Republic's deposits and most of its loans. Uh, the 84 First Republic branches reopened uh, this morning, and customers did have full access to their money. The failure, though, is expected to cost the government's deposit insurance system about $13 billion. Well, and when you start throwing around numbers like losses of $100 billion, you, it's, this is serious. Is it time to call this a banking crisis. You know, there was a worry when Silicon Valley Bank went under that the problem would spread to other mid-sized banks, that nervous customers would take their money and flee to the safety of bigger banks. And we did see some of that, but the flight seems to have stabilized. Other regional banks are not reporting the kind of outsized exodus that First Republic experienced. Now, historically, there has been some political resistance to supersized banks in the U.S. Mm. Uh, we still have far more small community banks than most countries do. Jamie Dimon, who's CEO at J.P. Morgan Chase, says those small banks do play an important role in the economy, but he argues big banks are important, too. We have capability to help our clients who happen to be cities, schools, states, hospitals, governments. We bank countries. We bank the IMF. We bank the World Bank. You need large, successful banks. And anyone who thinks that it would be good for the United States of America not to have that should call me directly. J.P. Morgan Chase was already by far the biggest bank in the U.S., and in fact, it had to get special permission from federal regulators to get even bigger with this acquisition. Scott, all three of the banks that have failed this spring, they all had a large share of uninsured deposits. How much did that contribute to their downfall? Ever since the Great Depression, the government's provided deposit insurance to reassure bank customers that even if a bank fails, they'll get their money back. And that helps to prevent bank runs. But deposits are only covered up to a quarter million dollars per account, and all three of these failed banks had a lot of deposits that were over that limit, money that bolted at the first sign of trouble. That is very destabilizing, and as a result, policymakers are taking a look at the deposit insurance limit to see if some changes might be needed. Um, What kind of changes might they be looking at? 
The FDIC came out with some policy options this afternoon. Uh, they said unlimited deposit insurance would be very expensive and might encourage undue risk-taking, but some targeted increase in the limit might be beneficial, especially for business accounts used to cover payroll and that kind of thing. Aaron Klein, who's at the Brookings Institution, argues wealthy only the wealthy would benefit from added insurance, though, and he worries that poor people would end up paying the cost of that. So he's, he's against the idea. We should note any changes in the deposit insurance insurance system would require an act of Congress. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. It took decades for the Department of Veterans Affairs to begin updating its electronic health record system. Now, billions of dollars later, the VA has halted that update. After multiple breakdowns and four deaths connected to system errors, it abruptly stopped all work on its $16 billion rollout of the Oracle Cerner Electronic Health System. It had been introduced at only five VA sites. NPR's Quill Lawrence spoke to some of the vets affected. Well, I had gone to my doctor's office for another yearly appointment, I believe. <coughs> Charlie Borg is a Vietnam vet living north of Spokane, Washington. He noticed his VA doctor was having trouble with a new program. She tried to put in the uh, referral to urology, and it took her three times to get it in. And at that time, she goes, got it this time. So she told me that they would contact me when urology got the results if they needed to see me. Borg never heard back. Months later, he saw his primary doc again. She asked why he'd never gone to the urologist. He finally saw one 10 months after the original referral. And at that time, they found out there was, a, I believe, a tumor on my prostate. And it came back that the cancer had spread to my lymph nodes between my spine and my stomach where they couldn't get to it. And that's why it's terminal. Borg says it might have been treatable, but his referral had disappeared into a glitch in the system. On top of the emotions he's feeling, the grief for his family, his grandchildren, Borg resents that veterans in Spokane and four other sites have had to deal with the troubled Cerner program. I was kind of irritated because basically they'd used us as guinea pigs on a system that they had never tested, and Cerner was saying it was okay. The Department of Veterans Affairs pioneered electronic health records with a program called Vista back in the 1990s. The decades-long push to update Vista and make it compatible with the Pentagon's health system wrapped up in 2017, when the Trump administration bought the Cerner system for $10 billion over 10 years in a no-bid contract. So far, it's only rolled out in five sites, including Spokane. The rollout at VA sites at Washington State has been an ongoing disaster, with new disruptions still happening. That's Washington Senator Patty Murray talking at a hearing last week on VA spending. I've heard from providers who are burnt out trying to navigate this broken interface, patients who are unable to get medicine they rely on because of system malfunctions, and even a patient who received a late cancer diagnosis because of flaws in the system. And that's just we, what we know right now. It is unacceptable. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough didn't contradict her. The Oracle Cerner system has been blamed for at least four deaths and hundreds of other harmful errors. McDonough has paused the rollout twice in the past year. I am extraordinarily frustrated with this. I know our providers and our veterans in Washington uh, and in Oregon and in uh, Ohio are extraordinarily frustrated with this. Finally, late last month, VA announced it would halt all further deployments of the system. McDonough says VA will concentrate on the five sites where Cerner is running and try to fix it. The whole point of this reset is 
clear away everything else. Let's focus on the five. Let's get it right. And then we'll talk about onward deployment. That's not good enough for many of the vets and providers using the system. Ed Maher, a former VA official, says the Cerner deal needs to be dumped. No matter how many billions of dollars they spend at it, they cannot make this system uh, perform as well as their current system. I think they're simply grudgingly admitting that this isn't going to work. Maher thinks the VA's old Vista system can be updated and work better. And it's wrong to keep subjecting vets at those five sites to a flawed system. For making them be guinea pigs in the first place, but to continue it now. And they've been willing to accept four deaths as the price of putting a system in place. Uh, you cannot do this to people. You cannot do this to veterans. This is health care. This is life and death. There's a five-year option to renegotiate the Oracle Cerner contract. That comes up later this month. And VA officials say they're pushing hard for better service. Otherwise, many in Congress are suggesting the VA should walk away. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. The abundant water in California has been a boost for many animals and plants, including a super bloom of wildflowers. But for some animals, it's been life-threatening. NPR's Lauren Summer takes us to the Central Valley, where rescues are underway for an endangered rabbit. The San Joaquin River is unrecognizable right now. This is a river that goes completely dry in some years because it's so heavily used in California. Now it's overflowing. It's really good if you're a fish. The ducks and the waterfowl are really loving it right now. Eric Hobson is refuge manager at the San Joaquin River National Wildlife Refuge. The river here has gone over its banks, swamping stands of cottonwood trees. We spot a beaver among them. Yeah, the, the beavers, are, they're kind of homeless because their lodges and burrows are inundated. But we found that they're very quick to make a new home. It's good for a lot of wildlife, but not all of them. You want to make wakes? It's up to you. Okay. We head out in an aluminum boat, looking for islands of dry land in all this water. So we have this strip of high ground that isn't flooded, but some of this is going to be flooded when the water comes up another two or three more feet. That will give the wildlife nowhere to go, including what Hobson spots right ahead. So we do have a riparian brush rabbit. It's a brown rabbit, only a foot long, and it's highly endangered. The late 1990s, they were thought to be near extinct. In fact, there was a, a period of time where they are actually thought to be extinct. This rabbit is in a wire cage, a small trap that Hobson has set so it can be moved somewhere safer. It'll be vaccinated as well against a new threat, rabbit hemorrhagic disease, a fatal virus that recently arrived here. So far, Hobson and his team have rescued more than 360 endangered rabbits. Some were plucked from tree branches after the dry ground disappeared. These rabbits didn't always need saving, of course. In the past, when the river flooded, the rabbits would just move to higher ground. Unfortunately, nowadays, most of that, that natural high grounds right up slope from the floodplains is taken up with farmland. Farm fields don't provide any shelter for the rabbits, so they have nowhere to go. Hobson says the Wildlife Refuge is trying to acquire more of this higher ground land, but it's tough in a prime agricultural area. Very few farmers are willing to sell that land, and when they are, it's very highly priced. But with climate change bringing bigger weather swings to California, including more flooding, expanding this habitat could be key for endangered rabbits and the whole ecosystem. Lauren Summer, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace this evening, according to a recent report, consumers bought more vinyl records than CDs for the first time in over 30 years. How the industry is keeping up with the demand, coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. With the Comcast Business Complete Connectivity Solution, it's cybersecurity, internet, and mobile, all from Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Somerville Open Studios, this weekend, noon to 6. Over 350 artists in 90 locations. Map, artist, and trolley info at somervilleopenstudios.org. Today on Wall Street, the Dow closed slightly lower after J.P. Morgan's takeover of First Republic Bank. The index lost just over a tenth of a percent. S&P was down a tiny fraction, and the Nasdaq dropped about a tenth of a percent. Cambridge-based Insurify is looking to expand. The company lets customers shop around online to compare prices for car insurance, home insurance, and term life insurance. Insurify's CEO tells the Boston Business Journal the company has raised a total of $128 million and is looking to offer comparisons on pet insurance, travel insurance, and small business insurance. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Coming to City Space on Friday, May 12th at 7 o'clock, a music festival featuring Lee Zangari, WBUR's Massachusetts favorite from NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. Tickets are at wbur.org events. Partly cloudy tonight, temperatures in the mid-40s. For tomorrow, lots of clouds, thunderstorms from time to time, temperatures in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. I'm Deepa Fernandez. My mum gave me her fierce yet kind way of standing up against injustice. She had everyone's back, from the supermarket worker to people who might have gone hungry if she didn't bring them a meal. She taught me that we only rise if we all rise together. Thank your mum this Mother's Day with Winston Flowers from WBUR and you'll support the station that has your back. Choose your perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. This Saturday is King Charles III's coronation. You'll see lots of pomp and tradition at the ceremony in London. But this next story is about what you won't see. The royals have decided to leave out one of their most glittering crown jewels. It's a famous diamond from India. Some say it was a gift to Queen Victoria. Others call it a 100-carat symbol of imperial plunder. NPR's Lauren Freyer begins this report in southern India. Centuries before humans began mining diamonds deep underground, gems were discovered only when they worked their way up to the Earth's surface in places like this. A muddy tributary of India's Krishna River. This is where legend has it, 800 or so years ago, someone stumbled upon what was then the biggest diamond in the world. My guide Mohan Devarpali explains. In the earlier times, people used to go to the rivers and take baths. And there were no soaps or no any cosmetics at the time. So use the wet clay which is next to the river banks. While pulling the clay, they found the diamond. It was the size of a coconut, 
and they brought it to their then rulers, the 12th century Hindu kings of the Kakatiya dynasty. At the time, India was full of warring states, and the kings, needing to keep their diamonds safe, hid it in plain sight. Inside the statue of a Hindu goddess in a temple that still stands today in the southern city of Varangal. Saffron-robed monks are chanting prayers around a big golden deity of the goddess Durga. She has these deep black holes for eyes, and for centuries, one of those eyes was filled by the diamond. So one of the eyes was the diamond, which no one knew except the kings. It looks like glass. Even the priests, they were not knew that. So it was a top secret. It's a top secret place to hide the diamond. It worked for a couple centuries at least. But rumors spread about this giant diamond guarded by a goddess. And it became the object of violent conquest. It's the nearest thing to the Ring of Power and Lord of the Rings. Wherever it goes, it stirs up anger, greed, murder, and bloodshed. Historian William Dalrymple co-wrote a book about the diamond and all the mysteries, even curses, that surround it. We can tell from its geology that it did come from this one part of India. But beyond that, its history is enormously disputed. It, uh, there's almost no record of it until it's on the top of the Peacock Throne, which is built in the 1640s by Shah Jahan, who's the same guy who builds the Taj Mahal. By this point, much of India has been conquered by the Mughals, Muslim emperors. One of them, Shah Jahan, puts the diamond on his Peacock Throne, his seat of power. And that is around when the diamond becomes comes known as the Kohinoor, which means mountain of light in Persian. An Iranian leader called Nadir Shah defeats the enormous Mughal army. Uh, from Iran, it enters the hands of the founder of Afghanistan. The Kohinoor passes through Mughal, Persian, Afghan and Sikh empires. All of their rulers covet the diamond. One of them strapped it to his arm in battle, another to the front of his turban. And all of them met grisly deaths, murdered, betrayed, defeated. And that is where this whole mythology of cursed diamonds begins. So by the time the British arrive on the scene, the Kohinoor is thought to be cursed, at least for men. But there is one person they thought might safely wear it. She was Queen of Great Britain. She was Empress of India. In the mid-19th century, British diplomats befriend a 10-year-old Sikh prince, Duleep Singh, who'd inherited the Kohinoor. And they basically take this little boy's diamond in a treaty and give it to Queen Victoria. That loss is felt memorialized in India to this day. What an enormous diamond! Look at its brilliance! Can you tell me what this diamond is? In a sound and light show at the 11th century Golconda Fort, the voice of Bollywood's biggest star, Amitabh Bachchan, bemoans the Kohinoor's fate. The Kohinoor is still in Britain. This is just a record. Diamonds from the mines of Golconda. I have very strong feelings about this. Sardamani Sharma is an Indian tourist I met at the fort. The British never apologized about anything. They're the ones who came and tried to quote-unquote civilize people, but civilized people don't steal and don't take away stuff and never return it. There are growing calls to return the diamond. But to where? India? 
Pakistan, Iran, Bangladesh, it spent time in all of those places. Even the Taliban claim it's theirs. Meanwhile, the British sell tickets to see the diamond. The exhibition explores the importance of the crown jewels to the British monarchy. And advertise it as a symbol of conquest. They've done so since 1851, when the Kohinoor was the star attraction at the World Exhibition in Hyde Park, London. It was for that exhibition that they cut it down, lopped off at least 85 carats. And to Indians, it's actually a perfect, perfect metaphor for what India went through. It was reshaped and recut and diminished into something that suited a British palate and and, and British needs. Historian Anita Anand is Dalrymple's co-author and co-host of their podcast called Empire. We don't really learn about the history of empire. It's painted as if it was something very long ago, not really interesting, and yet it shapes the world that we live in today. It's always glimmered in, in my life. I mean, if you are a British Asian, you know about the Kohinoor. Last year, India and Pakistan celebrated 75 years since they won their freedom from the British crown. But for many, the story is incomplete. The British crown still has their diamond. It's still only worn by women. The last queen consort wore it to her coronation in 1937. Tradition says Camilla would wear it this weekend. It's a few days before King Charles' coronation, and I'm at the Tower of London where the crown jewels are kept. There are hundreds and hundreds of people waiting in line to see the jewels. You're about to enter the crown jewels exhibition. So I'm on like a conveyor belt, a people mover that you have to stand on as you whiz past the crown jewels. Pearls, diamonds, crosses, rubies, emeralds. And I think that's the Kohinoor. Yes. And it's just sparkling. It's amazing. It's like the size of a walnut against a purple velvet crown. Um, yeah, the one of the reason to come here is the diamond from India, so we, we would like to see it here. That's Rutva Danalia. Behind her is Anjit, who goes by one name. They, and me, and almost half the people in here have just landed from India. Are you here to see it? Yeah, yeah. That was, that's what we want to see, actually. Mm-hmm. It's uh, some part of Indian culture. Maybe we should get it back. The Indian government has asked for that repeatedly. This winter, Buckingham Palace made a quiet announcement. Camilla will not wear the Kohinoor to her coronation. The diamond will remain locked in the Tower of London this weekend, firmly on British soil, but too sensitive to parade around. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, London. This is NPR News. This is WBUR. Shuttle buses will replace trains tonight and the next three nights on part of the Blue Line. The shutdown will happen between Government Center and Wonderland Station from 8 tonight to the end of usual service. In the forecast, should be windy overnight tonight, partly cloudy, temperatures in the mid-40s. Only in the mid to upper 50s tomorrow, lots of clouds, showers, maybe some thunderstorms as well. This is WBUR. It's 6.30.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. And Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com.